Hello and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your co-host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And with me, as always, is my co-host, our Vice President of Policy, Derek Cohen. Our special guest today is James Quintero. James, welcome and uh, thanks for being on the show. James is the policy director at uh, TPPF's or with TPPF's Government for the People campaign, which focuses on transparency and accountability in government, along with budget and taxes and pretty much about half of the issues that we that we uh, talk about here at TPPF. James, thanks for being on the show with us. Thanks for having me. This might be, Derek, this might be the show where we get fired. Uh, this <laughs> might be the one that, that ultimately uh, does us in uh, if, we don't, if we aren't careful about how much fun we have on the show today. I don't know. I think uh, sunk cost at this point is uh, is taking hold. Um, all right. Well, we want to get into um, obviously the 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 big issues. The tax cut is the big one. We want to start maybe maybe start with that one because um, it's been a couple. It's been a few months, few weeks uh, since we passed the tax cut and kind of how all that went. So maybe the dust has settled a little bit. We want to get your kind of uh, uh, thoughts on that. Um, but as always, there's a shameless plug. Y'all know me. Uh, our newsletter, our weekly newsletter, is called the Post. It's a f- uh, fantastic piece. If you only have time to read one news newsletter a week. Uh, sign up for uh, Texas. Po- uh, sign up for the newsletter at texaspolicy.com slash the post. There's exclusive content. Uh, I write a column for that. There's a kind of a catch up on everything that TPPF is working on. A lot of it's featured. James's work is, is featured there. And then, of course, we always add, we always end with something uh, kind of fun and kind of cultural at the end. So sign up for the post at texaspolicy.com slash the post. Okay, let's get right into the top topics. James, uh, you were very involved uh, in, uh, I mean, for years frankly, in trying to get, you know, multiple versions of various tax reduction, tax relief done uh, in the state of Texas uh, multiple times, including uh, last session. But this one felt different. This one felt mm-hmm. like like this was the big one. Uh, take us through a little bit um, and just remind everybody kind of what they ended up passing um, and and uh, and kind of what the details are. Yeah, no, great question. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So one of the things that we set out to do at the beginning of the legislative session is put Texas on the pathway to property tax elimination. Um, we have this crazy idea here at TPPF that uh, you ought to own, you ought to have the opportunity to own your property once it's fully paid off. You shouldn't Huge pay. True. <laughs> you shouldn't pay rent to the government in perpetuity, and so. You know, one of the uh, one of the things that again that we tried to do this session is at least eliminate a portion and take a step in that direction. And I think now that the dust has settled, we can say that we are on the pathway to elimination. Uh, now, for everybody who doesn't want to, uh, who doesn't necessarily care about the details and, and the nitty gritty, let me just say that most people in Texas will see at least a thirteen hundred dollar annual tax reduction beginning actually uh, beginning this fall and so there's going to be money in your pocket here very soon as a result of the action that the uh, the legislature took now there's a lot of uh, moving parts on the the tax relief package but the two main elements really are tax rate compression and an increase in the homestead exemption. And without getting too wonky, I'll, I'll just kind of yeah. give you a high level. And this is a more sophisticated kind of nerdy audience that oh, we okay. have as well. But <laughs> but I even think this issue sometimes can get so bogged down. Like you said, I mean, we're cutting a portion of a portion of a portion yeah. of the tax. And it is significant, but it, but it, but because of the just sort of the nature of how we handle property tax and, and, and revenue collection in this state, it, it can't even get super bogged down even for a 45-minute podcast. So, oh, yeah. So, so if you can hit some of the details, great. If not, 
of just take us through the stuff we need to know. Yeah. So really what the legislature did is they took, they, they put their focus on school taxes. So as you all know, when you pay your taxes, school taxes represent the largest portion and of the school tax. We, we took uh, a look specifically at the MNO tax, which pays for your day-to-day stuff. Um, and with respect to the MNO tax, what the legislature did is they used, uh, they directed a lot of their surplus. In fact, it was more than half of the surplus um, toward this uh, school uh, maintenance and operations tax rate to compress the rate from a maximum of 91 cents per $100 of value to roughly around 70 cents per $100 of value. And- That's actually. A- and that's why, and because you're reducing the rate, mm-hmm. that's why most people um, will will see a tax cut because everybody pays something in property taxes. Um, and so, if you're, but if you're reducing the rate, then that will cover everybody because you're literally lowering the, you know, doing the, the you're lowering the amount based on the fact that you're reducing the rate at which they're taxed. Very, yeah, okay. it's a very good point. It will uh, broadly affect everyone in a beneficial way. So everyone who pays school tax will benefit from this particular component, which is great. Um, So that's about a 24% rate reduction, which is estimated to benefit, again, the average homeowner by about uh, $600 just in and of itself. Uh, You look at the increase in the homestead exemption, which of course voters have to approve in November. And that is another huge benefit that's going to redound to uh, the benefit of, of the average homesteader. And that will uh, increase the homestead from forty thousand to a hundred thousand, uh, which takes a huge portion of someone's taxable value off the rolls, and uh, and so they'll effectively be taxed at a lower value, and that's going to produce another six hundred and fifty to seven hundred dollars worth of savings. Those two things together produce. Uh, oh, uh, more than $1,300 in savings in year one. And this will hopefully go in perpetuity. And I say that with an asterisk because, of course, we're going to touch <laughs> on the greedy local government component, which I think is... Uh, well, no, and, and that's, a, a, y- y- that's a great jumping off point because one of the things that we've talked about is the, the, the profligate spending on the local level. But let's even keep it just where we're talking about the tax relief, in the, specifically in the schools. One of the things that isn't addressed is, you know, the bond indebtedness that many of these ISDs have. You know, we'll talk about, uh, you know, fiscal restraint. And then, of course, we hear about, okay, well, what about teacher pay raises? And, you know, obviously you uh, look at the superintendent's salary every once in a while. On occasion. (laughs) On occasion. Um, But there is no... There is no controlling mechanism other than the ballot box, which has all sorts of problems with it in terms of when the bonds go up. But there's no uh, there's no control on the local spending when it comes to indebtedness. Is there a opportunity, maybe in the next session or beyond, to put some sort of functional cap on there, some sort of mechanism? I'm not sure what that mechanism is, but is there something? Yeah, so already in state law, there's something known as the 50-cent debt limit, which is a limitation on how, how much of a tax rate a taxing unit can impose on a, a property owner. And so... Now, one of the problems with the 50 cent debt limit is that uh, there's been all sorts of valuation growth, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. property values are skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as values have increased, the uh, capacity under the debt limit has just grown and grown and grown. Um, And and so, 
you know, in, in for practical purposes, you see, you don't really see that debt limit have any sort of meaningful impact on controlling yeah. uh, how much these guys are going into debt. I'll give you a good example. It's relative to the valuation, the valuation through the room. Exactly. I'm still trying to pick my mouth off the floor after learning that Prosper ISD is going for a 2.8 billion dollar bond. I mean, this is an the ironically <laughs> named. Ironically <laughs> named. And by the way, that 2.8 billion dollars is principal only. You tack on another, you know, 30 to 40 percent in interest, and that sucker is. I mean, you're talking. Three well, to four the, billion and, dollars, and you talk about the, how the elections are not a good, uh, you know, measure or a good, good uh, block for that, right? You ask the people all the time. I mean, they've got these measures where, you know, I think I think we passed a law where it says, you know, this is a tax increase for you. You know, like what do we have to put on these bond measures to let people know, like you are mortgaging your child and your grandchildren's future on this before they realize that this isn't free money. You could have in November, first of all. Well, <laughs> and, and you know, to that point, there's this great little story that I love to tell. The, uh, uh, at the legislature on occasion when, when this issue comes up, you know, there's a young lady here in, uh, in Austin by the name of Gretchen Gardner who was interviewed several years ago by mm -hmm, the Austin American mm -hmm. Statesman. And she was at one of these kind of property uh, protest uh, hearings and she was talking to the reporter about how she can't afford to live here anymore. And she, she told the re reporter flat out, you know, I vote for every park, I vote for every library, I vote for everything that they put in front of me, but now I can't afford to live here anymore. Mm -hmm. And what that tells me is that we have voters going in to decide these massive bond propositions who aren't making the connection between new debt and new taxes. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we tried to do in, in 2019 is offer up a very simple idea in that these bond propositions ought to have some sort of price element on, on the ballot that tells the voter, hey, mm -hmm. if you vote for this thing, your taxes are going to go up by X number of dollars. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, the, uh, the bad guys got the better of us, but we did get uh, something of a consolation prize in the form of a disclosure statement that now forces school districts to say very clearly on the ballot that this is a property tax mm -hmm. increase. Mm -hmm. And again, this is try this is trying to help voters make that connection between yeah. new debt and new taxes. I so, just think I just think we're you know and in, in, but those things still pass. Yeah. Because you know because <laughs> then the next thing people say is well I don't really know how much I pay in property tax. Like do you do you know how I mean how do you not know how much you pay in property taxes thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, a year that you could be using for just about anything else, you know? And I mean, I guess to some extent we have to pay property taxes and um, or at least certain property taxes makes sense. But the fact that people don't have any idea, you know, mm -hmm. that you're going to have to take it the next step. It's going to be, you know, we're going to have to say, are you crazy for voting for this? Like you have to be absolutely insane to be mortgaging your 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 children's and grandchildren's future. Are we gonna have to put that on the bond and bond election uh, language in order to get people to understand what they're voting for here? And it, it would be one thing if all of this indebtedness were in service of needs. But you look at the multi-million dollar high school football stadiums. You look mm -hmm. at the Taj Mahal facilities they're building. Mm -hmm. You look at all of the bells Don't forget and water parks. <laughs> water parks. That was that. Uh, that was actually paid out of reserve funds. Um, but I don't. But, I don't mean to slander the good people of La Because you, you couldn't use anything else for. You couldn't use anything that money for anything else. Yeah, I mean, there's park. there's clearly an environment of excess at the local level, particularly with respect to school districts. And you're right. We've got to get a, con a better control on the rate of local debt and i'll give you just one last point mm -hmm. you know if you look at if you go to the bond review board's website um one of the one of the items of information they have on there is just how much money was put up for a vote in may 
Any guesses on how much in total local governments came at voters for? Um, it's going to make me sad, so I don't want to play. Yeah. The <laughs> most, the most in Texas list history. like everybody else with their property taxes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't pay property taxes. I'm going to pull the ostrich thing. It was the most that I've ever seen put in front of voters was $45 billion in total. That is principal only. That doesn't count any interest uh, owed on the debt. Hmm. And of course, most of that was approved. I expect that that trend's going to continue because uh, it doesn't seem that local governments have any sort of meaningful controls on how much they're taxing and spending. And that's $45 billion on top of the, what, $240 billion that the state already collects from people? Higher than that? Oh, God. See? Now, <laughs> see, that's why I don't want to play because I get the number wrong and so, it's in the wrong direction. So all local debt totaled all together is in excess of $400 billion. That's insane. Um, and by the no, way- No, I meant, I meant the, the money we actually have that we raise from people and spend. Oh, yeah. Right? That, that budget's right, 240 somewhere around there uh, for, for the budget. So then another $400 billion that they've collected that's already on the books for debt. And then they're going to ask for another $45 billion. Well, well gee, I, don't, I, I, I understand why people are, uh, are, can't afford things these days. Yes. And so, you know, something to definitely keep, keep in mind when, as voters approach uh, all of the bond propositions that are being put up for a vote in November. One other thing I want to mention, because this is kind of uh, a kissing cousin of all of the bonded indebtedness. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm seeing uh, happen very frequently right now is school districts in particular are voting to put uh, something known as Vader's in front of uh, in front of voters I in think November. You make these words up. Vader's are, of course, voter approval tax rate elections, which is a big fancy way of saying they want to raise your rate much higher than it should be, so as to collect more than the revenue limitation allows. So basically, they're coming at voters in November with big tax increase proposals, and those accompany all of the bond propositions that they also want. So uh, we're tracking about 18 different Vaders happening across the state right now. I anticipate many more. And of course, these things are coming at voters because the because they recognize an opportunity, really. They recognize that the legislature has just provided folks with lots of tax relief mm -hmm. and that they have the opportunity to reach in and grab some money without really uh, making too many taxpayers. I see mad, a lot of Star Wars jokes in the future on the <laughs> on the Vaders. If we already are, we already have a Death Star bill, yeah. which we'll probably talk about here. Uh, I understand that Disney's very protective of their intellectual property, so let's uh, <laughs> maybe pump the brakes on this and I'll keep that T in the, uh, the the acronym. So you tease the thing that I am really excited to talk to you about, excited in a bad way, um, is is that is that issue that the the you know, went through all went through all of regular session talking about you know property tax cuts and how they're going to get it done. Ultimately, didn't get it done in regular session. The governor brought it back for two more special sessions. All this work, everything we're trying to do to get relief to, to average Texans, to get every Texan some property tax relief. And here come the locals. And here come the local <laughs> governments, your school districts, your local, your county governments, your local governments, and they all know that the vast majority of us are all going to be getting some kind of tax relief, and they can't wait to get their hands on it. Tell us how that's working functionally at the local government level. Let, let me let me offer a positive outlook before I go into the negative, because <laughs> I don't want to be just a negative, Nancy. You know, the right. legislature has done done, I think, very well to try and put uh, try and inject some reasonability into the process and what i mean is of course uh, several years ago now the legislature 
lowered what's known as the rollback rate. Of course, they changed the terminology to voter approval tax rate. Um, and they, they installed an automatic voter approval requirement. So they, they are trying to implement tax reforms that better control how fast local governments can raise property taxes. But of course, you know, the local governments have many different ways to circumvent those new limitations. Um, they use things like certificates of obligation, which mm -hmm. are non-voter approved debt instruments to get around it. They go, they blatantly go and ask voters for, uh, to break those limits with voter approval tax rate elections. There's all sorts of mechanisms that they use to get around it. And so, you know, on net, we have seen a slowdown of the property tax levy growth that has characterized the path, uh, the past, but but really it's it's still continuing to grow too too far and too fast, and so you know w to your point, one of the things that that we've seen that's very evident is the the expenditure side of the ledger con continues to grow at some very concerning rates, and you can just look at any of your your major municipalities uh, and, and look at their bu budgets that they're adopting right now, and so. You know that is being fueled not only by an ex by excessive property tax revenue growth, but but these guys are finding other ways to augment uh, their their revenue, mm -hmm. and and so you know they're raising fees, they're levying new fees, they're imposing, uh, they're hiking fines, they're doing all sorts of things to get the the their income streams mm -hmm. up so as to maintain uh, an exaggerated level of expenditure, and so. You know, I think the legislature is ultimately going to have to get to the place where they consider more a more comprehensive reform. And what I mean is that they they need to uh, consider a comprehensive spending limit. We need to get spending under control so as to ultimately bring property taxes and all the other uh, income streams under control, too. Well, let's, let's let's it's not all bad, right? Let's focus a little bit on one of the I think brighter spots, and and you know you've been doing this for for quite some time, and you remember Eric Johnson when he was in uh, the legislature. I don't believe anybody, and I don't believe he would even say uh, that he was a uh, a fiscal hawk, a conservative. Um, now mayor of Dallas. Yeah, now the, yeah, but now he's the mayor of Dallas, and if you look at the way he's running the city, he actually is imposing. Um, or, or should I say calling for, you know, cer certain spending limits for uh, no new revenue rates, for all these things that we would normally uh, associate with conservative governance. You know, he's, you know, who ran as a Democrat, obviously nonpartisan at the local level, ran as a Democrat in the uh, legislature. But now he's bringing a lot of that to the city of Dallas. What do you think is a what do you think has led to that? kind of contraposition while everyone else is spending like drunken sailors mm -hmm. and two is it going to be contagious well mayor johnson and select city council members up there really do deserve a lot of credit for putting forward some really aggressive proposals to bring not only property tax under control but also get a handle on spending mm -hmm. um, and they pl they have plenty of reason to do so if you look at uh, one of the things that uh, i i enjoy doing because i'm a nerd is I was digging through their comprehensive annual financial report, which everybody can find online. This is publicly available data. And one of the things that the CAFRs allow you to do is see audited information about things like revenue, expenditures, demographics, et cetera. So I went spelunking through the CAFR to figure out what 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 have been the trends in this community? And one of the things I noticed is that expenditure growth has grown by about 55% over the last 10 years. 
And you think, okay, well, that's you know perhaps reasonable, but let's growing let's, city inflation, blah, maybe blah, blah, growing yeah. city. Uh, then I went and tracked uh, its population growth, and yes, it has been growing, but only by about two percent over the last ten years, right? Oh so you got from 2013 to 2022, expenditures have grown 55 percent. Over that same period, you've got a two percent increase in population. So. So I, I definitely applaud the mayor uh, and his cohort for taking action. I think he recognizes that the cost of city government in particular has grown far too large as, as mm -hmm. compared to what's needed, mm -hmm. and they're trying to take corrective action. Um, it's, and it, there's not any indication that the services have been tremendously improved over that uh, uh, point and over that point in time. I mean, not to not to disparage anybody necessarily, yeah. but the point is, you you've got a 55 percent increase in the spending, only a two percent increase in the population. So if your if your if your argument is well, the quality is a lot better in terms of the services. There's not really any indication uh, to that, or there's no argument for well, that. Well, and here's and this this might get to uh, help us get to a later point. You know, one of the things. That that's very clear to me is we have city governments doing far too uh, much. Mm -hmm. They are engaged in a lot more activities than they ought to be. And you, you look at mm -hmm. you know climate change and DEI and equity and all sorts of, of progressive ideas mm. and concepts have infiltrated our largest cities and they are driving uh, activities that, that ought not be happening. And as a result, of course, you know, expenditure growth uh, accompanies that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cities are doing too much. They need to to really get more focused and back to the basics um, so as to not only uh, control the rate of expenditure growth, but but really just do things that most people expect, like fill potholes and mm -hmm. police the streets. Uh, so enough of this happy talk. I'm going to get back to the, the <laughs> negative stuff. So the really insidious thing, just because it's happening to me, I live in Kyle, which is a suburb of, of Austin, and I wrote about this in the exclusive content and the post, which you, I'm sure all of you subscribe to. Um, but I wrote about this because I saw an article about my city council meeting in which they're openly and brazenly talking about this issue of, of, well, you know, according to our numbers, you know, the, the, the people of Kyle will be getting a, a major tax cut. They, they specifically reference the homestead exemption. You know, well, well, they're getting a big tax cut because they're now going to be able to, to lop off $100,000 of taxable value. Uh, so any, any rate increase or any tax increase will be softened. I mean, that's the, that's the language they're just openly talking about. Oh, well, when we increase taxes, people won't be as mad because they're getting a big tax cut already uh, from, the, from the state government and to me it's just like you know that's not the point that, that's mm -hmm. not the point here is that is that you know, you're already spending too much money or like some some localities are but the fact is we're supposed to be getting a tax cut we're supposed to be yeah. getting let you know we're getting more money in our pocket that's not money for you to then go out and say oh well you won't mind it as much I mean the, just the whole logic and the approach to me is, is just incredibly offensive uh, no I, I think you're right to be offended so so but viewers should know when you look at your property tax, uh, burden. There's really two components. There's the M&O rate and there's the INS rate. On the M&O rate, there's a limitation. So if you're a city, you can only impose a rate that brings in 3.5% in revenue before you got to go to voters and ask for permission. So that, that piece is set. You look at the, the INS rate, which is related to debt, and there's a lot of games being played there because there's not as, as there's not the same strict limitations in place that govern the the M&O process. And what I mean is in the city of Kyle, what they're talking about is something known as debt defeasance, which is a now really going to go real nerdy, which which is a really <laughs> fancy way of saying they owe a lot of money. Right. And 
in order to to uh, what what they're going to do with all of this excess that that they're currently enjoying is they're going to bring some of those future liabilities into the current into the present moment and pay them off by imposing a rate that is higher than it ought to be. So so it's kind of like think about it this way: you um, you owe a lot of money on a credit card, right? And, you know, you just got a raise, perhaps you're going to use, you're going to dedicate those extra monies towards paying off all of that extra stuff that you owe. Which, which, which sounds responsible. Which sounds good, right? Yeah, right. Except that they're very transparent. Uh, they're very transparent in, in their future motivations. They say, let's pay off that liability so that we can create capacity under the, the rate so that we can go out for an even bigger bond. So it's, And that's called debt defeasance. That sounds like like the lead singer from like a 1980s like <laughs> funk band, right? Yeah. So so they've got the first part right, I guess. You know, they're paying off what they owe, but they're only doing it so that they can go into greater debt in the future. But and not, that's, yeah, they're not paying it down so that they can have a surplus right. or that they can, you know, put investments, uh, um, uh, you know, in, into the public or whatever. It's and they're, they're using the opportunity that presents itself now, which is that people are enjoying some measure of tax relief or getting ready to. Yeah. And so they see that opportunity. They say, hey, now's a good time to increase our rate, maybe just a little bit so that we can create that capacity. And that's bad. So you mentioned, um, you know, again, it's a good segue to talk about the Death Star Bill, which Derek and I have had fun with uh, several times uh, on the on the podcast and talking about that, although it's a very serious issue. But I think you kind of hit on something that we've dabbled a little bit on. Uh, but, but I really want to highlight that point is that city governments are doing all kinds of things that they shouldn't be doing. In particular, a lot of the, the, the bluer cities are, are essentially enacting a very left wing progressive agenda at the local level because they can't get it done at the state level because we have you know statewide Republican politicians and we and Republicans have controlled the legislature for however long and so they're they're basically using a backdoor with the locals to to do all of this climate change and all of this regulatory stuff uh, as well that really is the impetus I think uh, well that and, and and streamlining business regulations but a lot of that is the impetus for HB twenty one twenty seven the so called Death Star bill um, and talk a little bit about how that bill gets at some of those issues. Yeah, no, it's, um, and, and viewers should know that there are, in Texas, there are two types of cities. You have your general law cities, which basically do only what the state uh, says to do. And then you have your, <clears throat> you have your home rule municipalities, which are governed by a charter. And these, these types of entities can do anything that the state has not expressly prohibited. Right, so that it's, it's uh, they are provided with uh, a great degree of discretion and latitude in terms of what they can um, implement in terms of policy. So, an example of that for our audience would be: there's a statewide minimum wage, mm-hmm. and so a city can't go in and say, "Well, we're going to lift the minimum wage to eighty-two dollars an hour." Now, now, that statute would govern all cities, so no city in Texas would be allowed to. That's what I mean. Okay, yeah, right. Good point. Um, now, let's say uh, one of the area, one of the. Um, I think uh, originating points for this Death Star bill, as as the media <laughs> likes to call it, was I think we like to call it several, that more. I think, actually, we hear more from us. We've embraced the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, several years ago, there was a question as to whether or not home rule cities were allowed to uh, create uh, mandatory paid sick leave ordinances. So these mm-hmm. uh, these big cities got it in their minds that they could tell employers that hey, you got to provide your employees with such and such uh, amount of days off, 
right? And there's there's all there was all sorts of legal wrangling over that, and the courts ultimately decided that uh, right. that that was not allowed. But but uh, there was a, a period in time where home rule cities did think that they could do that because the legislature had not expressly prohibited it. What about Our, like the bag ban bill? That, the, was that a similar thing? The bag ban. Uh, so this was yeah. The the municipal bag ban was um, an, another kind of um, similar issue where cities thought they could do it and there there had to be some uh, uh, court uh, involvement interaction <laughs> to really uh, correct the the scene but yes that was another issue where cities thought they could do it because they thought the legislature had not expressly prohibited anyways so so we have cities who um, who are provided with a great de- degree of discretion in terms of what they can do and what the left has done is they've gone about, capturing a lot of these offices at the local level and then using the these levers of power have really put into effect some very progressive things mm-hmm. um and and you can see it manifest in in the expenditure side you can see it manifest on the you know the the social justice policies that are mm-hmm. implemented uh the growth of government in general i mean it's very evident that our large urban cities have been captured um, with a few exceptions, but our large urban cities have largely been captured by the progressive mindset, mm-hmm. uh, which has fueled all sorts of, of bad policy that the legislature has generally tried to um, snuff out one at a time. Um, you know, they've taken <laughs> rifle shots at some of the worst of these things over the last several years. And it's unfortunately, it's gotten to the point now where a more comprehensive mechanism has been needed to to really rein in these municipal excesses. And so that was was kind of the the impetus for the Death Star bill is mm-hmm. we started looking around saying, my goodness, all of these bad ideas are everywhere. We need something that is going to get control of the situation in a little better fashion than just a, a rifle shot at the issue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was kind of the genesis of, of the Death Star Bill, which employs something known as field preemption. So basically it takes a section of code and says, local government, cities, you can't do anything more than what the state is doing in this area. And, uh, and so you got to rein things back in. And of course, mm-hmm. progressives uh, are, are livid that their agenda is in peril and of course, they're taking yeah. to the courts, alleging, making all sorts of, of crazy allegations that the law is somehow invalid. Because we've of, talked about the water break. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they have some wild ideas. I, I think ultimately their their uh, efforts are going to be fruitless. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, this this Death Star bill is going to provide a foundation upon which the conservative mil- movement will build and will advance more aggressive pieces of similar legislation so as to get control of what's happening on the ground. So what you're saying, though, is that this uh, piece of law will be fully operational when November arrives? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like on the Star Wars jokes. (laughs) One of the things, and and I was, uh, you know, and and you say, I'm glad that that this is a foundation on which to build because one of the things that the left really is pushing is a lot of this uh, climate change alarmism and the policies at the local level. So getting rid of, you know, the bag ban might have been part of that, but also... um, Getting rid of natural gas stoves, right? Like the the the, the, the you know the the assertion that, that that wasn't real, and then you see all these headlines coming out about New York and everybody else starting to to no ban one's gas coming stoves. for your stove. Oh, LJK, we're coming for your <laughs> yeah, stove. just just 
just just kidding. We are coming for your stuff. Or or you know, San Antonio had their their climate action plan two or three years ago uh, that we helped um, uh, stop, which is which would have banned you know trucks, trucks and, and other uh, you know buses and things like that uh, that, that use that use uh, fossil fuels, which is just ridiculous that, that a place like Texas would ever ban trucks. Anyway, that stuff is not covered under under HB twenty one twenty seven, and I think that's a that's a big part of the leftist agenda to try and get a stranglehold using regulations uh, on cities and businesses. Um, and so if this is a foundation, then then that's good that maybe they'll come back and start to, to look at some of those other issues. Yeah, we have, a, we have activist governments everywhere doing all sorts of things that I think voters find offensive and that most Texans agree ought not be happening. And I say that with confidence because you look at the composition of the Texas legislature and it's very clearly conservative. Uh, which means that most Texans agree that government should be limited and defined and ought not be chasing California-style policy. Um, And so, yes, I I have a lot of confidence that the legislature is going to use the lessons learned and the laws passed this session in the future to expand upon that concept and really rein in the worst of of the progressive agenda. Well, your lips to God's ears. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think I think James and and one before we kind of close out the, the local governance side is you mentioned that they, they're captured by um, uh, you know by this progressive orthodoxy, this progressive elites, and one of the things that I think we don't have enough a discussion about within the state of Texas is how much of all this fanciful spending is being enabled by federal spending, yeah. right? And so and so. I know there's been attempts to audit that before. There's been attempts to regulate and have some sort of approval by that money being drawn down because obviously that money, you know, nine times out of 10 drawn down from the federal government engenders some sort of obligation, oftentimes an ongoing obligation. And so in doing so, do you think that the state has the ability to start regulating what would essentially be an intergovernment transfer between the federal and locals. Does the state have the ability to do that? And if not, what could be a uh, solution that would engender that uh, ability? I would say maybe. Um, and before I get to that point, you know, one thing that, that I want to put on, on viewers' uh, radar is, you know, if you go back, you know, 10, 12 years ago, Texas was in a position to receive all sorts of money, federal money, mm-hmm. from uh, the American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, there were several billion dollars that were flowing through the, uh, the state government systems. And I remember uh, very clearly sitting uh, at a panel discussion featuring the LBB's John Barton, who was the, the director at the time. And what John said is once that money had kind of fully run its course through uh, the state, even though agencies were told to use those monies uh, for one-time expenditure purposes only, agencies didn't listen. <gasps> and so as a result... <laughs> Did you of, just clutch some pearls over there? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm, luckily I'm sitting down, but please continue. <laughs> as a result of all those, those monies flowing the, through the system, about one-third of them had become recurring costs or created recurring expenditures. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and my big fear with all of the pandemic related aid today is mm-hmm. that we're going to find ourselves in a very similar situation, except that it's going to affect state government as well as local governments. It's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, the city of Austin, wouldn't, remember, they uh, I believe they were talking about because they're currently in the budget, the budget cycle 
where they're saying, you know, these, you know, these federal dollars are going away. How are we going to pay for like all this bolstering of public health? And now, you know, as well as me, that public health in the city of Austin means everything from food access to abortion access and all these other fungible uh, liberal hobby horses. But they're doing that right now. Like, yeah. this is not some amorphous thing that might happen in the future. It's literally happening before our eyes mm-hmm. in the present. It's happening right now, and it's happening everywhere. And just to give you a sense of the problem, if you go to the LBB's website, they do have some decent uh, trackers on this stuff. The latest data point that I, I recall is uh, they stipulate that $80 billion in federal pandemic-related aid is flowing through the system right now. It's set to expire in fiscal year 2025, which means we have a relatively short time between now and the time that those monies are exhausted in order to get ready for what's about to happen. And I can guarantee you that places like Austin are going to turn around to the public and make some sort of, of specious argument that, hey, we need to raise your taxes a lot because we've got all of these COVID programs that uh, public health programs, public yeah, health programs anymore, that, yeah. that, you know, are good for the public. And, you know, we want to maintain them. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, you know, there's this really curious thing now where, of course, I guess we're all talking about masking up and COVID problems. Oh, so that adds a, a really interesting new wrinkle to all of this. But But yes, we are on track to find ourselves in a place where these these tens of billions of dollars are going to be exhausted for state and local governments. And then we're going to have to figure out what to do next. Uh, And hopefully tax increases aren't a big part of that. I can't wait to see who takes a eight hour hunger strike in solidarity for that one. (laughs) Well, that's a good segue into I don't think that that max mandates and vaccine mandates and all that stuff is going to happen again in the midst of a of a Republican presidential uh, uh, contest right now. Um, we, we had the debate last night. I think, um, you know, states, especially politically, you know, super politically important states like Texas, um, you know, uh, are not, are not going to go down that path with the going back to the lockdowns. Of course, mm-hmm. Texas was one of the first states to get rid of its lockdowns and, and definitely was one of the, uh, was the first state to return to pre-pandemic level employment as a result of, of, of those decisions. So it'd be tough. I, I think it'd be very tough uh, for, uh, for Texas to go down that path, but certainly during a Republican presidential uh, contest when everybody's vying to you know to be the the, the most conservative uh, or not depending mm-hmm. on how you watched the debate last <laughs> night. Um, but I did want to get your takes, especially Derek. I know you watched the whole thing um, and wanted to get your um, you know. Do you have any? Are there any hot takes still left out there after no. the spin room last night that everybody? Oh, watched? I mean, I think that we have a an inexhaustible font of hot takes. And, okay. you know, that's just kind of what uh, made you want to start a podcast. So, so as obviously <laughs> I'm uh, obviously I'm wearing the uh, uniform of the day the uh, blue suit red tie mm-hmm. uh, which I noticed everyone except Nikki Haley was uh, wearing uh, yesterday and it's funny because you know they make jokes about that, like that being the Republican uniform of the day and then it actually happens of course um, <laughs> and it would be weird if somebody actually wore something like a yellow tie that's yeah. all anybody would talk about right. the next day so. right and so and so I mean obviously look I don't I don't the lens in which I watch you know political uh, events like that through you know obviously is very policy focused and that might not be the best um, the best lens to use when you have an eight uh, an eight person food fight going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I did notice, though, I think, and what was pleasantly surprised, I think, it, I think most, if not all, stocks 
raised last night. Um, you could make an argument that uh, Ramaswamy's might have turned down some uh, with some of the food, uh, some of the mud slinging. But I think everybody, if for no other reason than just the exposure, you know, if are starting to see more of these particular candidates. I know James, huge Doug Burgum guy. Um, <laughs> um, he, or, or, you're, that sounds uh, like ca- somebody's like high school fake name or yeah, something. Yeah. He's catching Hutch's sanity. <laughs> um, uh, all, all joking aside, though, I think everybody, including uh, the governors, um, had the stocks have gone up because they have heard a more, more traditional conservative message from somebody that they had not heard from uh, before. Obviously, coming from the criminal justice world, I was very familiar with uh, Asa Hutchison prior to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a uh, right on crime signatory and the whole nine yards. But, you know, his governorship of Arkansas was pretty much under the radar. I mean, he wrote rightly ran on a record, a good record, but he didn't really highlight that much. So I don't know how much juice is going to be coming out of the squeeze. There was no major faux pas, obviously. Um, you know, the, uh, the the talking heads at CNN got out there and I saw that uh, uh, some lady was talking about, oh, well, the lack of diversity on stage when, you know, the truth is it was a pretty diverse stage if all you're looking at is skin color and uh, gender. But it's not it was there was a, a lot of diversity in terms of the policies that uh, the Republican primary electorate mm-hmm. holds dear. And I think that that is what's getting missed by the media here. I, I again, I you know, this is an endorsement or um or denigration of any particular uh, individual. But I thought that the one thing I would like to see more from everybody was a less selective application of, you know, federalist principles, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think Nikki Haley a bit, a bit danced around it some, but she had the best answer on abortion when it turns when it came to what the actual federal government can do. Right. Not, not what we should do, which obviously there's plenty of time in this debate for what we should do, but actually having a good reflection on what it, it can do. Um, and not only that, one thing I'll add, the one thing else that stood out to me is the uh, kind of the astroturf commercials. You know, Republicans for Ukraine, Republicans anti-Ukraine, Republicans milk toast on Ukraine, but for you know, uh, you know, paid uh, development in Lesotho. You know, stuff like all these. Uh, you know, I would say niche interest groups um, trying to kind of buy their way into the the, the conversation, mm-hmm. and you know, that's. It, you, you forget, well, you live in a state like Texas where we're not inundated with political advertisements. So when I go back to Ohio, especially if I go back in like an October or, pre, you know, previous November, it get, it gets a little rough. Here we don't have the uh, absolute carpet bombing of political ads. And that's one thing that watching uh, the debate last night kind of <laughs> reminded me of. Thank goodness we're not Iowa. Yes. Um, anything stand out for mm. you? You know, uh, last night's debate was was hugely informative from from one aspect, and that is... I think it signaled the death of cable news. And it may be a long, slow fuse, but it was very evident based on the ratings that the Republican debate received versus the ratings that Trump and Tucker received. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at last count, I think uh, the Trump, Trump-Tucker interview had 180 million views. Mm-hmm. And I'm not real sure. What... How many were you? <laughs> <laughs> a fair amount. <laughs> but, but I think what it signals to me is a transition away from the traditional cable news format towards something that's much more exciting 
exciting, engaging, yeah. and uh, non-traditional. And so I, mm. I, I think that was hugely informative for me last night. Yeah, I think the debates uh, are always the least important part of the debates. It's yeah. always the before and after and everything where everybody you know talks about their opinions on, on the stuff well, that the, actually matter. Because to your point, there was just a lot of talking points, yeah. you know, and there was a lot of consistency in terms of what people thought about some issues. Uh, there were some differences in others, but it, I, I just don't think it was it illuminated very much. One of the things that, I, unfortunately, but to James's point, that I that the talking point that was missing outside of I think Mike Pence was the only one who uh, mentioned it was any form of like spending and tax control. Yeah, and he did so in defense of the uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Yeah, um, so he almost got dragged there. But nobody else was, you know, everyone wanted to lambaste, uh, you know, Bidenomics, the Biden economy, and, and rightly so. But what's the answer to that? And it's not just, you know, oh, what's more American energy production? You know, believe me, Texas will have as many wells as people will buy the oil for. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody uh, minds that. But, you know, our friend Vance, Vance Ginn. Mm-hmm will be the first to tell you, because he made, made this bit of a crusade, is that no matter what you do on the tax side, none of that matters because that piper is going to come home to, or is going to eventually uh, have a bill come due if you're not controlling on the spending side, right. to your point earlier. Yep. And so with the two minutes that I think we have left in the show, um, uh, although we we, dealt, we got really into the local government side, which I, we've been wanting to do uh, uh, for a while, so we're thank you for having that. So a couple minutes left. The only thing I will point out is I, I, you know, I paid a lot of attention attention to the the border security discussion mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. only three or th- about two or three that actually got to talk about border security before they moved on uh, to something else um, but I thought that you know both Asa Hutchinson and Pence and this is a criticism both discussed wanting to have a partner in Mexico and yeah. I think those of us who are watching this issue very closely <laughs> particularly in the last four to six months and watching what their leadership is doing watching what their military is doing and how there is open collusion with yeah. the cartels uh, on a lot of these things the idea that Mexico is and could be or will ever be in the near future a partner and that that will be their approach as governor, I think that um, disqualified is probably a little strong of a word, but I think it definitely sends, uh, particularly to those of us who are following this issue who are, you know, our backyard is the border, um, uh, sends the wrong message. Um, I thought DeSantis kind of did his thing. They asked him about it and he kind of did his thing. Absolutely, 100%. I'll send special forces in. I'll defend our people and kind of, you know, uh, which is is an aggressive take, right? Like, it's not just about defending border communities. He's actually saying we'll go in and destroy the cartels and the fentanyl farms and all that kind of stuff, uh, which I think a lot of us around here want to want to talk about as as a as a potential. Um, but it didn't. But I guess I guess I didn't hear as much of what I wanted to hear uh, from the candidates on immigration, which, as we all know, we talk about it here, is certainly the number one issue for Republicans in Texas, uh, and is a top three issue for Republicans and conservatives nationwide. Mm-hmm. And I, I allow me to yes and that you know, especially with the partnership with Mexico, I want a Ferrari Stradale, but I don't. You know, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, right? Mm. And and so I think that having a very sober view and, you know, a sober view is one of unilateral action because otherwise right. you, you lack the necessary components for almost any other policy intervention. All right. Well, we are we are officially out of time. I think this was uh, incredibly informative. And, and though we didn't go super into the details, I think we got a ton of new information uh, from you, James. So I really, really appreciate you being on here, kind of explaining how things work and kind of some of the things, I won't say, you know, the, the doom and gloom, but some of the uh, <laughs> things that people need to be aware of um, in terms of uh, and maybe, maybe you're not going to get the tax cut that you're expecting to get uh, and you need to be aware of those things. I will send a uh, another commercial for, is it 
it uh, texas.gov slash property taxes. That's right. For folks who want to know exactly how much they're going to pay in property taxes next year, which, of course, uh, the, the new fiscal year, the bills go out October mm-hmm. 1. Um, so we'll, we'll have some definitive information here shortly. But for those who want to take a sneak peek of what, what's coming up, go to texas.gov backslash property taxes. Uh, terrific little website mm-hmm. that, that'll tell you all sorts of you information. Put in, you, you take, it's a little bit of a bank shot. You put in your, your county website or you put in your county. You have to find that. It takes you to the website. But I found a tremendous amount of information. I found it incredibly helpful. And, and James walked me through it a little bit on how mm-hmm. to get there and so and kind of understanding what that bill was. But it's all right there. I mean, that's the thing about it is that it is all that public information. So there's no reason for anybody out there to not know how much they're going to pay in property taxes and not be angry about it when you don't get your tax cut. Rebel, rebel, rebel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, again, James, thanks so much for, for being here again. Uh, thanks for our listeners, all of our watchers. We really do appreciate all of your feedback. Uh, and as always, do good and risk the consequences. We'll see you next time.